To celebrate Marketplace's 35th anniversary, we've made some throwback thank you gifts you can get when you donate during this March fundraiser. We took our old .com era logo and put it on a sticker, on a glass mug, a tote bag, and a t-shirt. No matter how much you donate, you can get a fun piece of Marketplace history. Check them out at marketplace.org donate. These limited edition gifts are only available through March 22nd. Get yours at marketplace.org donate. This is Marketplace After the Bell. I'm Scott Jagow, and I'm here to make sense of what happened this week in business and the economy. It's Friday, October 30th. This week, we learned that the economy grew in the third quarter. That's right. It grew. It's nothing to sneeze at. The economy hasn't grown in a year. But to just leave it at GDP is up 3.5%, hooray, would clearly be wrong. We have to ask why the economy grew. I'll give you a hint. It starts with a G. The government's cash for clunkers program, the government's home buyers tax credit, the government's stimulus spending, the government's low rates for banks, they were a major part of the GDP growth. That's not to dismiss entirely the idea that the economy is starting to turn around. Here's how Margaret Sims of the Urban Institute says it. It's a uh... A sign of hope, you might say, not a sign that your reality is going to change in the short term. Especially with respect to jobs. It's entirely possible that payrolls won't start increasing until the second half of next year. Tim Quinlan's an economist at Wells Fargo. Between now and then, the, the headlines will still talk about rising unemployment. Ultimately, the, the job market needs to recover in order for any kind of lasting recovery to, to form. And then there's this problem of jolting the economy back to life. What happens when you jumpstart a dead battery? Usually you can drive to the service station, but if you go anywhere else and turn off the car, it's not going to start again. The housing market is exactly like that. Here's money manager Whitney Tilson. If interest rates go up, if the unemployment rate gets worse, if the $8,000 tax credit isn't renewed, if FHA stops doing all of this massive, reckless lending, in my opinion, if any of those things goes away, look out below in housing prices. And you thought we'd hit bottom. I don't know. Maybe the housing market and the economy have hit the bottom and we're bouncing back up. Or maybe the government built a temporary ledge to stop the fall. It would be nice to get to the real bottom of everything. Because you know what? From that place, there really is only one way to go. Into the caverns of tomorrow with just our flashlights and our love. We must plunge, we must plunge, we must plunge. And then we'll get down there, way down to the very bottom of everything. And then we'll see it, oh, we'll see it, we'll see it. Marketplace, providing you what you need to know about business and economics on air and online. Explore everything Marketplace has to offer, from explainers on technical terms to stories on personal finance at Marketplace.org. There was news of another bailout this week, a third bailout for the car finance company GMAC. Excuse me, the bank GMAC. Remember last December, GMAC was granted status as a bank holding company, so that it would qualify for the government's rescue funds. $12.5 billion later, GMAC is back for more. Just like Oliver Twist. Please, sir, 
I want some more. More? <laughs> yes, more. And for giving another bowl of oatmeal to GMAC, the taxpayers get a pocketful of preferred stock. Joining me to talk about GMAC and other news of the week is Henry Blodgett. He's CEO and editor-in-chief of the Business Insider. Henry, I read a column you wrote saying that the biggest problem with this GMAC deal is that the taxpayer is getting preferred stock. Can you explain that? That's right. If you look at a capital structure of, of a typical company, at least the companies that we, the taxpayers, have bailed out, you usually have some bonds, so people that have lent the company money. You have some preferred stock, which is sort of in the middle. Then you have common stock. And the reason that you would buy common stock is that you want to capture the upside if things go well. Bond investors don't usually capture that. The reason you would lend a company with money with a senior bond is that you would be the first to get your money out if the company actually failed. Mm-hmm. With preferred stock, we're right in the middle. All we get is a dividend, so we're getting paid like a bond, but we are junior to the bond. So if the company goes bust, it's the bondholders are going to get the money first. Then eventually, if there are a couple pennies left over, we'll get them back. That's under the assumption that GMAC will fail, because if they succeeded, if they did well, then the taxpayers would, would benefit, right? That's right. They'll be fine. Taxpayers will do fine. The the other component to it, in addition to being in a senior bond position, would be to get a big slug of warrants on the company's equity. And so that protects you both ways. You're protected if it fails, but you also have options to buy a lot of stock at a very low price if things go well. And the reason that I'm advocating that is that that's what I think a private market participant would demand. Again, this is a company that without the taxpayer is going to go to zero and get dumped into bankruptcy court and everything else. And certainly there is now an issue that we are, we have to save the previous money that we put in, but no private market investor would come in without getting making sure the terms for itself were excellent in any event. And I just don't feel like the taxpayer is being well enough taken care of here. I mean, it really does look like a bottomless pit because you're putting money in to save it, but then you have to keep pouring money in to protect that investment when all the while it could just go under. That's right. It's, It's throwing good money after bad. And we've been told since the beginning of the financial crisis that Whatever write-down we're on and whatever bailout we're on is the last one. The company is comfortable with its cash position, everything else. And thus far, with some of the companies at least, there's just always been more bad news six months down the road. And part of this is due to the fact that the Treasury still has not acknowledged, at least publicly, that the problem is that the loans that were made that are on these companies' books were idiotic loans, and they are failing. And it is not a question of temporary liquidity where the assets are slightly undervalued for whatever reason. It's that the companies made terrible loans. Well, let me take the other side here. We we also had a huge investment in the car companies. One of the reasons that GMAC is being protected here is because of its vital importance to the American car makers and their customers. So why would we not continue to support GMAC if if our goal is to save the car companies? Well, the goal to have financing in place so people can continue to buy cars makes absolute sense. And no, no one is disputing that. The very frustrating thing from my perspective is that the folks who lent GMAC money to begin with, and again, you can't lend money without somebody giving you the money to lend, have been made whole 
in this scenario. The taxpayer has 100% protected what turned out to be idiotic loans in hindsight. And that just isn't right. Ultimately, what the government should be doing is saying, look, you free market folks who made loans on your own to do this, you're going to take a major haircut, whether it's 50 cents on the dollar, whether it's 20 cents on the dollar, whatever it is, we are going to come in, we're going to keep the facility in place for car loans to be made, uh, but we, the taxpayer, are going to be rewarded for that as fully as we should be. Henry, we, we kind of joke about this being a bottomless pit, but seriously, when does this end? It's not bottomless, thankfully. Even even a company like GMAC has a balance sheet. It has however many billions of dollars of loans on that balance sheet. Lots of them are going fast, very rapidly. The reason they need more money is that more of them are going bad than they thought as recently as six months ago. But they're not all going to go bad. And if the economy starts to recover, a lot of the pressure on the ones that are going bad will ease, and they will start making new loans to people hopefully much better equipped to pay them back. And so gradually the health of the balance sheet will improve, and the company just has to have enough capital that it can withstand the losses from the the loans that it currently has on the books. Another big story this week is the too-big-to-fail issue and what Congress might do to address that. What do you think about the proposal so far? I think there, it's good that Congress is finally talking about this issue. I think what's troubling about the legislation as it currently stands is this idea that there is going to be a secret list of firms that are simply systemically important, therefore they're too big to fail, but the government's not going to release that list because if the public knew about it, then they would realize that these firms had a effectively a government guarantee on their debt. It would skew everything and so forth. But you can't have a secret list like that. And I think the whole concept of too big to fail, in fact, is crazy. But if you look back over last year, that was going on. The secrecy was going on. Uh, we didn't know what was behind the scenes with these banks because of that very argument that you were just making, that if people knew, there there would be a run, there would be a panic. So we're still doing the exact same thing, aren't we? Absolutely. And the whole attitude all the way through the financial crisis was you can't handle the truth. <laughs> Don't worry. Trust us. We know how to deal with it. But you, America, and the public can't handle the truth about how bad things are. Again, I, you've got to move toward more transparency, not less. And since then, we have moved away from it, starting with Mark to Market, where the reason the companies were getting hit was because they actually had to be relatively honest about what their assets are worth. Now, they don't anymore. Why don't we start with the idea of making these companies smaller instead of, you know, we'll just keep an eye on them. And if we see some bad tendencies, then we'll step in. We saw how well that worked last fall, right. where effectively you you write off hundreds of billions of dollars in the name of, if we don't do it, the world is going to end. Uh, and then 20 minutes later, you wake up and realize what you've done, just given away all this money. So that clearly doesn't work. Can you break up firms in an acceptable manner? Sure. We had Glass-Steagall for 80 years or however long it was following the last great crisis, and it was created 
as a way of addressing some of the issues. What we saw, of course, was in the 70th or 80th year, everyone said, well, we've learned now, we know more, we don't need Glass-Steagall anymore, we don't need to keep commercial banks and investment banks separate, so let's put them all together, and lo and behold, less than 10 years later, uh, everything blew up again. So there's certainly an argument to be made, you should reenact Glass-Steagall, and you should break up commercial and investment banking, that would make the firms a lot smaller. There are probably other things you could do to make them smaller. I, I just worry that as soon as we talk about some size being the limit, then you're going to get into these huge fights about, okay, well, what is it? Is it a trillion dollars of assets? Is it a half trillion? And so forth. And so I think we're going to run into trouble. And the other actually argument against limiting the size of firms is banking is becoming a global business. And you look at some of the huge Chinese banks that are not going to be limited and too big to fail. They're, they're the biggest banks in the world now. And so you also got to put us in a global context. Okay, so then what's the solution? If we're not going to break them up or, or you know, limit them by size, and we don't like the approach of the bomb squad coming in after the bomb's already blown up, what do we do? I, I think there are two simple measures that would fix a huge amount of this. The first is much higher capital requirements. In the years leading up to the blow-up, we had firms taking $1 that they owned and borrowing $40 and betting it in the markets. It doesn't take much of a downturn to wipe you out. And that's what happened again and again. So I think we got to take a longer-term view and definitely raise capital requirements. The other thing that I think is simple and would fix a lot of this is making it so even the largest firms can fail without threatening the system. And the simple way to do that is to have the debt in these firms automatically convert to equity if they hit a level of capital that is below the requirement. And so what happened in this whole collapse, if you'll remember, is that as these companies started to lose money, the amount of equity they had was, was knocked down by the losses every quarter. And at some point, they suddenly needed more capital because they had too much debt. So, And then what we made a decision as a country to do was to protect the debt holders 100 cents on the dollar. So if you lent money to Citigroup, we're going to make sure you don't lose anything. That is crazy. These are adults who are lending money to Citigroup. And to say to the idea is, okay, if the company has less equity, then we're going to take some of that debt and we are going to convert it to equity. And sure, that is going to hurt the people who lent money to Citigroup. But again, we have a free market economy. You have sophisticated investors deciding to lend money to these firms. Right. There is no government guarantee. And the more we perpetuate the myth of one, the more harm we do ourselves. Henry, it's been a pleasure. Great talking to you. Thanks so much. You too. Thank you. That is Henry Blodgett, CEO and Editor-in-Chief of The Business Insider. Check it out at businessinsider.com. This is Marketplace After the Bell. I'm Scott Jagow. I remember back in March when there was so much anger about the AIG bonuses. I remember thinking, this will pass. People will let it go once the economy starts recovering. And for a while, the passion did seem to tail off. But it's come back. For one thing, the economy hasn't started recovering in earnest. 
Plus, there was the Goldman Sachs bonus story, the profits on Wall Street while the unemployment rate kept climbing. So the anger started to build. This week, thousands of protesters gathered in Chicago. The American Bankers Association was holding its annual meeting. What a coincidence. The organizers of the protest set it up like this. America, are you ready for the fight of the century? It's David versus Goliath, Main Street versus Wall Street, the American people versus the Wall Street banksters. It's the showdown in Chicago, October 25th through 27th, Chicago, Illinois. Go to www.showdowninchicago.org to join the fight. It's kind of hard to take that seriously. And the media really didn't. There wasn't that much coverage of this protest. I wonder if there's much substance to the public's will to make change happen. Or whether people are just shouting into the wind. I mean, is it really true you can't fight City Hall? I'd love to hear your thoughts on this. Share them with me at my blog, The Scratchpad, at Marketplace.org. That's after the bell for this week. I'll be back next Friday to make sense of what's happening in business and the economy. In the meantime, think about a way to get inspired. American Public Media. A lot of people spend a lot of money on things like skincare, fast fashion, and even surgery, all in the name of self-improvement. But as the price of perfection rises, when is it time to call it quits? I'm Rima Hreis, host of This Is Uncomfortable, a podcast from Marketplace. This season, we dig deep into the financial trappings of self-care and the real motivations behind our spending choices. Listen to This Is Uncomfortable wherever you get your podcasts.